0: Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. This is Dr. Todd Schlesinger for Dialogues in Dermatology. And today we're going to be interviewing Dr. Carolyn Wieland from the Mayo Clinic Department of Dermatology in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome, Dr. Wieland. Thank you. Today, we're going to be speaking about circulating bolus pentagoid autoantibodies in the setting of negative direct immunofluorescence findings for bolus pentaglioid, a single-center retrospective review. Now, this project looked back at patients over a 10-year period to determine what the characteristics of ELISA-positive and DIF-negative patients who were initially being evaluated for bolus pentagoid. As we know, both Pentagoid and its related diagnoses can present a challenge in the clinical setting in terms of establishing the correct diagnosis in the presence of an indistinct presentation. However, due to the adverse effect profile of many systemic treatments for both Pentagoid, it is critical to arrive at the right diagnosis. Dr. Whelan, please describe how the idea for this project came to be and how might the practicing dermatologist use this information?
1: It's good to be with you, and I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss our study. This idea came to myself and colleagues and co-authors over time, kind of in real life with our clinic. In our clinical practice, we often see patients that are being referred with unresponsive skin disease or unexplained paritis, and many of our patients have been seen already by at least one dermatologist or other dermatologic provider. Therefore, we're often in a situation where we're casting a broad net in diagnostic evaluation and looking for atypical clinical presentations of diseases such as pentagoid. In addition to performing direct immunofluorescence testing, we're often adding serologic testing for autoimmune blistering diseases, including both pentagoid 180 and both pentagoid 230 ELISA studies, as well as indirect immunofluorescence studies in our initial consultation to increase our detection for autoimmune blistering diseases. So, because of this, we sometimes would run into the scenario where a patient would have a negative direct immunofluorescence result, but then would have elevated both pemphigoid autoantibodies on the ELISA testing. And it became difficult sometimes to know how to guide further monitoring or recommendations for these patients. We wondered how many of these patients progressed to both pemphigoid over time, or if there were other common clinical factors when this occurred. So we set up this retrospective study as an effort to try to answer some of these clinical questions. Additionally, I had seen rare scenarios where there was detrimental overinterpretation of the Bull's pemphigoid autoantibody testing. And one example that stands out to me is an elderly lady I saw in consultation with extreme pruritus based on her itching and a biopsy that showed a subepidermal cleft with eosinophils and elevated BP230 autoantibodies, she had been given a diagnosis of bolus pentagoid. And her itching was unresponsive to numerous systemic immunosuppressive agents. But when I saw her in clinic, a mineral oil scraping confirmed a diagnosis of scabies, and she subsequently improved with treatment of the scabies. So that was just one cautionary example of how a patient had been put on multiple immunosuppressive agents due to overinterpretation of autoantibody results in the absence of other supportive testing. So to summarize, in our review of a cohort of patients with negative direct immunofluorescence and positive BP-180 and or BP-230 ELISA testing, we found that spurious elevation in these autoantibodies are not necessarily limited to any particular clinical scenario or localized or generalized dermatosis, but they should be interpreted in caution, especially in the setting of negative direct immunofluorescence findings.
0: It makes tremendous sense. So, at the Mayo Clinic, clinic is, do you have a standard of care that involves uh, testing, running ELISA on uh, patients who present with various uh, clinical signs and symptoms uh, in the absence of obvious clinical signs of bullous pemphigoid?
1: Exactly. I wouldn't call it necessarily standardized, but I would say that when we see patients that could potentially, and I'm casting a broader net probably than the average community dermatologist, when we see patients that have itching and paragonodules and have been continually unresponsive to prior treatment, we tend to cast a very broad net and expand our testing for autoimmune blistering disease. So in our retrospective review, these were patients that already had this testing in the context of our consultative practice.
0: Yeah, so hearing that, it, it brings to mind the various forms of those pemphigoid that you can see, uh, you know, uh, mucous membrane, membrane pemphigoid other forms, uh, unusual in, in, uh, uh presentations. Uh, what are the most common forms of BP that you see? What are the more rare forms of uh, dermatoses that end up being BP do you see in, in clinic there? And what are the diagnostic challenges? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Uh- I mean, we all agree the classic presentation is fairly distinctive, but the non bullous forms, those that can present with more of an urticarial phase or even sometimes a little bit more with eczematous plaques, um, can be really difficult to diagnose, as well as forms that might mimic paragonodularis. So these patients with atypical forms, still the direct immunofluorescence testing is, is gold standard and it's highly sensitive and usually diagnostic. But sometimes in these urticarial uh, stages of pentagoid, even the direct immunofluorescence can be a little bit difficult to interpret. So, as opposed to sometimes having linear IgG and linear C3 on the direct immunofluorescence, sometimes we'll only see weak linear IgG deposition. And in those scenarios where even the DIF may be difficult to interpret, the ancillary serologic studies, including ELISA testing, can really help supplement our diagnostic confidence.
0: And to speaking about ELISA, so uh, ELISA is a, is a term that, you know, probably many, so many of us are familiar with because we trained, you know, I trained at Cleveland Clinic. We ran a lot of ELISA tests. You know, we were doing a lot of uh, Bull's diseases. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, in general, you know, just to review, you know, tell me a little bit about ELISA, you know, our audience. What's the acronym stand for and how is the test performed?
1: Sure. ELISA stands for Enzyme-Linked Immunodervant Apps Assay. And I think, you know, a lot of our audience is probably also familiar with indirect immunofluorescence testing, and I think you can kind of compare those a little bit in your mind. You know, in both situations, we're dealing with antigens, in this case, bolus pentagoid antigens, that then get labeled with patient sera, and then there's a secondary antibody that allows for detection of the patient autoantibody. So with, for example, with indirect immunofluorescence, the antigen itself is in tissue that we're using, such as monkey esophagus, then the serum is applied, and then there's a secondary label of fluorescence. And then when we flip to ELISA testing, it's a similar concept, but we're dealing now with a a plate that has wells that contain the BP-180 or BP-230 antigen. Patient sera is then applied and allowed to interact with those antigens. So any autoantibodies will adhere and then unbound serum is washed away, and then there's a secondary antibody that's applied and allowed to bind. And then subsequent to that, an enzymatic reaction is introduced that produces a color. The extent of the color production is then translated into a semi-quantitative result. And that's how we get kind of a, a number value to the ELISA autoantibody test.
0: And this is uh, distinct and different from the direct milfrescens, which is performed on biopsy tissue taken and usually in bull's pentagoid from what perilesional skin. Is that, that what you exactly. do as well?
1: Okay. Exactly. And that's
0: important because we want to make sure that if we take skin from the center of the bulla, for example, we're going to oftentimes find that the reaction is burned out. And if we take a sample from too far away from the lesion, we may find there, not, there, there may not be um, autoantibodies present. You know, in the skin there. So we want to go perilesional and get, see the blister and get the, that's what we were, tra- you know, trained as well. So
1: that uh, is an excellent that point may- that I wanted to bring up too.
0: <laughs> yes, go, go ahead if you want to further elaborate on that.
1: Uh, sure. So, um, well, I'll, I'll kind of, you know, jump ahead that we found um, a very small subset of the cohort that we looked at again had negative direct immunofluorescence and positive ELISA testing. And when we looked at that cohort, you know, one of our questions was, you know, how many of these 200 patients then go on to actually have a positive DIF or develop or develop pentagoid that's confirmed by positive DIF. And we found that that actually was a very rare occurrence, at least on those patients we were able to follow up on. And when we looked back at those few patients that initially had a negative D.I.F. and subsequently had a positive D.I.F., the quality of the initial tissue for direct immunofluorescence testing was an important factor. So some of those cases, again, it was a very small number, but in some of those cases, when we went back and reviewed the initial direct immunofluorescence report, you know, it sounded like there was potentially some suboptimal tissue in those samples, perhaps too much separation of the epidermis from the dermis, or a challenging site, such as mucosa, where it might have been challenging to get attached epithelium. So, you know, it just reminds us how important it is to have that adequate specimen for the direct immunofluorescence study, and as you mentioned, going into perilesional intact skin.
0: It makes sense. You want to try to have an impact intact BOLA so you can see the reaction. So, speaking of that, so if we have a patient that presents. Well, so, I'll
1: just, I'll just to, clarify there. So, you don't need the BOLA for the direct immunofluorescence. So, the BOLA is nice to see when you're looking at the histopathology. And in some cases, we'll see people take one specimen and split it and send it for the histopathology and the direct immunofluorescence. But I think it's actually potentially preferable or safer to have a separate biopsy removed from the Bola for the direct immunofluorescence.
0: Yeah, that makes the best sense. Yeah. That way you can have a, a, a quality specimen, which seems to be um, of course, important uh, for the you know the lab to be able to process the tissue properly. So uh, given that we have a quality specimen and whatnot, you know, how does knowing the ELISA and DIAF's direct and status of a patient impact a management plan in which there's a clinical suspicion of those kinds of good already?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, we can think of the direct immunofluorescence test as being essentially positive or negative, confirming or refuting a diagnosis. Um, And as we mentioned, the ELISA testing is more semi-quantitative. So then, theoretically, the results of the ELISA testing or autoantibody testing Correlate at least loosely with extent of disease activity. So, the presence of the autoantibodies with ELISA testing not only can include the diagnostic confidence and specificity, but they can be utilized to help monitor level of disease activity. Of course, in this association with the clinical context, um, but this could be helpful. You know, for example, if you have a very very high autoantibody result with ELISA testing, then you may may lead you to the treat a little bit more aggressively. Or vice versa, if your autoantibodies are undetectable, whereas they had been detectable previously, then this might lead you to a situation where you may back off the treatment.
0: And, you know, when you're in that situation with an unclear diagnosis, you know, you think about other conditions that may present with positive BP-180 or positive BP-230 What other conditions could you see that are not full of that will still have a positive ELISA test for these two antigens?
1: Yeah, we saw really a wide range of clinical morphologies as well as what was determined to be the final clinical diagnosis within that cohort. And I mentioned kind of the story of a patient I had seen also previously with scabies. So I think when you have kind of these low positive autoantibody Findings They don't really necessarily guide us to any other specific diagnosis. Um, and we know that even, you know, we've looked back previously and have previously reported, even in the normal population, you know, a small subset of people unaffected with pentagoid can have low levels of these autoantibodies. So, you know, what we discovered looking at this, this positive ELISA negative DIF cohort is that there was a huge variation um, in the, the clinical presentations, at least to the extent that we put them in the same group to screen. So I guess we had some similarity there. Um, but there was also no correlation with extended eosinophili- peripheral eosinophilia, or I thought perhaps we might see um, difference with extensive disease. For example, even a patient that did not have pentagoid, I thought, well, perhaps if they have more extensive cutaneous disease period, perhaps they would have a more likely higher level of autoantibodies, but that was not the case.
0: It's very, very interesting, and it's amazing how much more we now know uh, based on, uh, you know, better lab testing. Um, The other thing I think about when I think about both pentacoid patients is age. You know, it's Mm -hmm. more common in older patients, uh, you know, something I'm more likely to see in my elderly patients. So. Did age play a role? Was was there a difference in the age of the patients who were ELISA-positive-DIF-negative versus your ELISA-positive-DIF-positive patients?
1: You know, in this particular study, there was a slight trend. So in our ELISA-positive-negative-DIF group, the overall age was slightly younger, but not significant. And I think, you know, when we looked back, we did a prior study where we looked at these autoantibody levels in unaffected non-pentagoid people, and we looked at it by decade. So in other words, when we looked at all decades throughout adulthood, age 20 through 90, there was no difference by decade in detection of these autoantibodies, which surprised me. So another way to think of this is that in a patient without pentagoid, you're not more likely to get autoantibodies at an elderly age based on what we have found. So if we're more likely to screen for pentagoid in the elderly population, which is natural, since that it occurs more common in the elderly population, but you're not gonna get in trouble by testing for the autoantibodies more so in this population. You're not gonna be at risk of getting a positive result any more than you would at in any other decade in the adult population.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then going forward, in that same population of, you know, this cohort you found with a positive ELISA of negative DAF, what other tests do you order? I mean, if you have those patients that maybe don't have a clinical presentation specific for BP, they come with urticaria or parot- what looks like nodularis or another dermatitis, does it help yeah. you choose what other tests to order uh, additionally as well in the workup?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to look at there is additional serologic testing, namely indirect immunofluorescence testing which is also semi-quantitative. And we had a number of patients within that cohort, the positive ELISA, negative DIF group that had positive indirect immunofluorescence testing. So, and ultimately were then given a diagnosis clinically a pentagoid. Um, So that's an important point. I mean, that cohort does not completely exclude patients that were ultimately called pentagoid. Um, So, I think there's several things to look at. One is additional serologic testing with indirect immunofluorescence. Second is, you know, what was the quality of that initial direct immunofluorescence? as we already discussed? Is that worth repeating based on some questionable initial sample? And then the third, I think, just kind of comes back to monitoring and level of clinical suspicion. Is this something that over time, if it's changing morphology, testing should be repeated or um, ELISA testing should be repeated at some point in the future to see if it's changed over time. I think, um, you know, that's a tricky question to answer, and it takes sort of a combination of of the clinical suspicion as well as monitoring and and, um, retesting.
0: I would think that's a very important clinical point, that if the diagnosis is not clear and the clinical suspicion remains, that you should retest. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, because these profiles will change over time. And I've learned that, you know, in myself, especially in the presentation of urticarial disease, where you really mm-hmm. are in a diagnostic quandary, clinical quandary, you know, what direction the patient's going to go in and if the clinical setting is right um, in the absence of, you know, initial positive, you know, positive DIF, ELISA, or IF, you know, in mil- indirect immunofluorescence, you, you know, want to keep a close eye on that patient and retest them. So speaking of, of testing in the community? So, you know, I trained at Cleveland Clinic, you at Mayo Clinic, when we were there, we had, had easy access to these laboratory tests when we needed them. How does the practicing community dermatologist access of testing, um, should they wish to have it performed on their patients?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. as you mentioned, there are a number of great reference labs in the US that provide uh, this type of testing you know, I'd say most of these larger immunodermatology labs, a lot of them um, are already a referral for the tissue. So community dermatologists, you know, usually already have the process that they're going to be sending off a tissue for direct immunofluorescence. So they may already be in touch directly or indirectly with that lab or a portion of the larger lab that can run the serum testing in addition to the, the tissue testing for direct immunofluorescence. And so I think that's a great starting point um, for finding resources for the additional serologic testing. And, of course, the advantage is, I mean, that the serum can be collected locally and then sent off for testing. And I tell you, if all else fails, if you get on Google, (laughs) that'll get you there. So um, there are certainly a number of different uh, reference labs that can provide this type of testing.
0: What if the all-famous Dr. Google comes to the rescue?
1: That's right. Uh, (laughs)
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. So looking at this type of study, it is a retrospective study, you know, looking, and I know that there were multiple different physicians or these tests, and the data was collated from, from, from the retrospective review. What are some of the limitations that come to mind with this type of study with it being a retrospective study?
1: Yeah, I think that the greatest limitation in my mind for this particular study is our limited follow-up. And a lot of it was give it, that a lot of the patients are seen here on a referral basis. Um, And so, you know, subsequent change in diagnosis or um, eventual development of pentagoin may have gone undetected. So I think in my mind, that's the biggest limitation in this case. Uh, We did have a good portion of the cohort that had greater than two-year follow-up, but a lot of those patients um, we had limited data on after a certain period of time. Um, additionally, as you mentioned, the diagnosis was really pulled from the, the particular clinician's impressions that were from the time the patient was seen.
0: Well, I think it's a very, very useful study. I think we could all learn a lot by reading it. Uh, if you could just summarize a few key takeaway take points for our listeners, I think we've certainly hit the high, high points, and I think a lot of our uh, listeners will uh, enjoy reading the article. Um, key takeaway.
1: Sure. I think the bottom line is dermatologists should really be aware of how to appropriately utilize and interpret these serologic tests, including BP-180 and 230 ELISA testing, as well as the indirect immunofluorescence. But as we already alluded to, it's really, really important to remember that direct immunosfluorescence is still the gold standard for diagnosis and has the highest sensitivity. And it's important to recognize that when you expand your testing to serologic testing and you get a low positive autoantibody result, especially in the setting of a negative direct immunofluorescence, that does not automatically equate with a diagnosis of penthagoid. And for at least a lot of our patients that we saw for you know, two years or more, they did not necessarily develop penthagoids over time. So that would be my takeaway not to overinterpret a low positive BP 180 or 230 ELISA in a setting of negative DIF.
0: Wonderful. Well, Dr. Whelan, I've learned a lot. I appreciate you taking the time to spend with me today. And I look forward to uh, speaking to you on the next dialogue. Uh, thank you very much.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.